This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Today, we're talking with Sister Alicia Torres. She is a National Eucharistic Revival Executive Team member. Uh, she's a member of the Franciscans of the Eucharist of Chicago, a religious community that carries out the mission of the church through service to the poor, evangelization, and teaching. Uh, she's got numerous degrees. Uh, I knew knew her. I think there was a documentary that you were part of uh, the, the, some years ago, uh, and I met you at the home of a, a mutual friend of ours as you were uh, pre- presenting there. You've been on the the Food Network. You once chopped back in 2015. People may know you from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Or from the numerous articles you've written for Catholic News Service, America Magazine, and many others. Sister, it's so great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's really awesome to be with you. So we're talking about the National Eucharistic Revival. It's a three-year uh, long-term plan that's being given to us by the USCCB, but I'm, I'm struck by how many in the lay apostolate are being used in their gifts uh, to carry out this, this mission from the church to help revive our understanding and our belief in uh, Christ's presence to us in the Eucharist. Uh, tell me how you first got involved with this initiative from the bishops. Absolutely. You know, like I always like to note as we begin, this truly is, I truly believe and the bishops believe a work of the Holy Spirit in our church. And when the Holy Spirit is moving, he's not only touching one heart, but he's touching many hearts because he wants there to be this communion and this unity, um, of course, around the one thing necessary, who is Jesus and his presence in the Eucharist. So for me, I was happily just doing this work here in Chicago on the West side, serving among the poor, teaching. And Bishop Cousins, um, who is currently the chairman of the Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis, and he's on behalf of the U.S. bishops leading the Eucharistic Revival, had asked to get feedback from Catholic leaders around the country from the top down and the bottom up, from dioceses, apostolates, religious communities. So there were a series of listening sessions. Um, This would be during the winter of 2021. And I happened to get invited, I'm not exactly sure how, to one of these to share feedback on this plan of the bishops to launch this Eucharistic revival. And so I I joined in one of those sessions. It was really exciting and inspiring to hear the enthusiasm of all the people and also very moving to experience just live the humility of Bishop Cousins and the bishops really to want to hear how this resonated, to want to get a sense of, is this moving the hearts of our people as much as we're sensing it's moving our own hearts? Um, And then from there, um, I was asked, my religious community was asked to discern if I could serve on the executive team. Um, And so that's how I find myself in this place. And what does that role look like as being a member of the executive team? Sure. So the executive team is a group of primarily lay men and women from around the country who represent um, some of our dioceses, our Catholic institutions, and um, apostolic works. So we are, in a sense, underneath the Bishop's Advisory Board. So the Bishop's Advisory Board is comprised of a number of bishops who, with Bishop Cousins, are constantly reviewing and discerning and 
helping to keep the movement on mission focused. Um, and then those plans and those desires of the bishops, in a sense, the executive team helps to make them happen. We don't do all of the work. Um, we give feedback. Those of us that are able are involved in some of the work to different degrees. Um, and then helping to also make connections with other Catholic organizations whose hearts are on fire for this mission. Um, so we've been meeting as an executive team since July of 2021. We just had our second in-person gathering in D.C. a few weeks ago, which was really exciting to review where we've been um, and to continue to pray and discern, okay, where are we going? This is what the bishops envisioned for this first year, uh, this diocesan year, this year of diocesan revival. And what are the needs that we are seeing that we want to address as an executive team and want to help make sure are covered so that this can be as fruitful as the Lord desires for it to be. You mentioned this first year is a diocesan year. It is a three-year plan. It started just this past June, June 19th, 2020, on the Feast of Corpus Christi. Uh, and it goes through uh, July 17th uh, through the 21st. There's the Eucharistic Congress uh, planned in Indianapolis. The last one of these was a, nearly 50 years ago, which is a little bit... Um, it it shakes me a little bit because uh, it, the last one happened right before I was born. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, it, it, when I saw that thing nearly 50 years ago, it kind of hit me a little differently. Uh, but uh, this used to be done on, on the regular, mm -hmm. uh, every, every decade or so there was a Eucharistic Congress and we haven't again done this for 50 years. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of folks first impression of, of this specific Eucharistic revival came from the, the mass media uh, and the news media talked, made, made a lot about the bishops coming together and having a vote on this mm -hmm. and a conversation around this. And they framed it in light of um, what do we do with th these politicians who mm -hmm. don't believe uh, everything that the church teaches and, and are the bishops going to deny them communion? Mm -hmm. Um, but there was so much more going into this than what the media was framing, because we have uh, as a backdrop these these um, studies, mm -hmm. these from either Pew or Gallup uh, or or the the CARA, the the um, Center for the Apostolate at Georgetown, talking about a lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. People answering questions about the Eucharist and and not having a Catholic theology of the Eucharist, even though they are Catholics regularly attending Mass. Uh, and so this highlights for the bishops and for our pastors and for people who are active in evangelization that work needs to be done, that we have uh, a job to do to emphasize what we mean uh, when we talk about Christ's real presence in the Eucharist, as opposed to what some of our uh, Protestant brothers and sisters may think about the Eucharist. So as you look at the task ahead of us, uh, what are some of the things that you yourself have um, maybe expectation or hope will come out of this mm -hmm, yes. as opposed to maybe what the media presented or, or what people have heard through the grapevine this thing is about. Right. Right. Yeah. There's certainly a degree of sensationalization. Anytime the Catholic church does something new, yeah. um, the media likes to get a handle on it, but like kind of just going back to that first point that I, that I wanted to make is that I not just me, but our bishops believe that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has been moving in the church since the very beginning. And if we go back to that moment of Pentecost, imagine just in your own hearts for a second, that upper room, the Virgin Mary, the apostles, 
other women were there. They were praying, praying for God's will, praying for what Jesus promised, the spirit that would be sent. And once their hearts were re-enlivened by that spirit, they were filled with this missionary zeal and fire to go out and proclaim Christ. And we know the very first thing that happened when Peter went out to preach, thousands were converted that very day. So this has always been part of our tradition of our church, these moments of revival, renewal. And, you know, certainly we have this three-year plan starting with this year of parish revival, which really that's effectively about the renewal of leadership, you know, and not saying that there's something wrong with our leadership, but if we get to the brass tacks of Christianity, of our Catholic faith, we all need conversion. We all need healing. And that's a lifelong journey. You know, for me as a Franciscan, we always look to St. Francis as a man who modeled that life of ongoing conversion and healing and renewal. And so we are hoping that the hearts and the heads of all of our leaders will take this moment, this opportunity to revisit, where am I in my relationship with the Lord Jesus and the Holy Eucharist? That's very, very important. Um, And then, of course, going into this year of parish renewal in 2023 and then moving towards this moment of the National Eucharistic Congress. Um, So we have this template, excuse me, or this plan, these initial moments and opportunities. But, you know, we don't see this revival as just this three year thing. Like we absolutely see it as a movement of the Holy Spirit that we hope and desire will live far beyond. Um, the Congress in 2024 or Pentecost 2025, because we're looking at that year following the Congress as this kind of missionary sending year. What we want to do is to provide an opportunity for the whole church to renew our faith and devotion to our Lord Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. But we can know a million things in our heads. You could have the Summa memorized on Eucharistic theology, but it still might not be touching your heart. And I think that that's at the bottom, at the ground zero of these statistics that we see. You know, 70% of Catholics don't believe or don't understand. And I think it's important to note, and I'm glad that you noted that aspect about the understanding, because I think it's easy to kind of start condemning and kind of, I've heard, you know, people ask, okay, well, whose fault is this? Well, Frankly, it doesn't matter at this point whose fault it is. This is the place we find ourselves. And how is the Lord asking us to respond? What kind of grace is he providing? And this is what he's providing. He's provided our bishops with a vision, and the bishops are sharing that vision with us and asking us to participate with them, first examining our own hearts. Where is my heart? Have I truly encountered Jesus? in the Eucharist? Has that changed my life? And if it hasn't, how can I allow myself to be challenged to open my heart to whatever that encounter could look like at Mass, in adoration, various different ways that we can connect with our Lord in the Eucharist. And then from that movement in my own heart, that experience of Christ in my own heart, that's what pushes me out to share the good news. Um, We know the church always has grown by testimony and witness. That's how the church has grown. I mean, remember that beautiful quote from Irenaeus, the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians. Like they were witnessing, martyrion means witness. (laughs) You know, they gave their lives for that. Are we willing to put our reputations on the line as Catholics to proclaim who Jesus is for me? 
And I think that that's what is at the heart of the revival. Um, and that's what excites me the most is helping all of our Catholics to imagine what the depths of their baptismal call actually is. You know, we all participate in the mission of Christ, which is the salvation of souls, which we don't usually use that phrase these days, but that's the reason the church exists, to get people to heaven. You know, we believe in eternity, uh, and we believe that there are different destinations, and we want people to get to heaven. Um, And that's why we share the good news, and that's why Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. And that's what the Mass is, a representation, a reliving of the Paschal Mystery every time you go to Mass. Um, I, I mean, I could go on and on, but frankly, I think if we knew in our hearts what the Mass was, the doors would be breaking down. We couldn't build churches fast enough. People would want to fill the churches to be there. Um, so I think that there's just so much opportunity and so much hope in this. Um, and I want to keep it on that on that trajectory because I think the media and you know, people that, you know, might have different things going on in their own hearts are going to have negative things to say all along the way. But what's the Holy Spirit saying? And that's the voice we need to listen Mm -hmm. to. I don't attribute necessarily Mm -hmm. any ill will towards uh, people who made those assumptions, simply to say that there is so much more to anything that that the bishops do than, than the latest little thing that we can point to. Now, um, as you're talking, there's a, a few things brought to mind. You, you talked about this need to renew and that not being a negative thing, this ongoing conversion. And I think back to, uh, I think it's St. Peter in one of his letters says, I know that you already know all of this, but I want to stir you up by way of remembrance. Mm-hmm. Uh, priests and religious, every year you go on a retreat because you know that there is this time away that that you need to have Jesus to his disciples who he walked with every single day for those three years, he would say to them often, come with me, come away to a solitary place, right? Mm -hmm. There is this need for us to retreat from all of the things that we know and all of the responsibilities that we have for a time to renew that relationship with Christ, to be alone away from all of the, the other things that might distract us uh, and I think back to G.K. Chesterton, uh, who in his opening uh, to the biography of uh, St. Francis, the hagiography as of St. Francis, he says, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. Mm. So to that end, you're a Franciscan. Mm-hmm. He's talking about St. Francis here. To that end, I, I would love to hear, we'll get to your original encounter with the Eucharist as you came to a deeper understanding of it here in a moment. But first I want to start with how does your connection to Christ in the Eucharist inform and empower the work you do as a Franciscan serving the poor? Right. It's such a beautiful Because we often, we often see these things kind of put up uh, opposed to one another. You're either serving the poor or you have this deep devotion. I want to hear how the devotion informs that service. Right, right. That's a beautiful question. <clears throat> Teal, thanks for bringing that up. You know, I'm thinking about um, this beautiful line from the book of Revelation, uh, remember your first love. And I think that's a scripture that really captures this beginning movement of the Eucharistic revival is who is our first love? It's Christ, Right. And what did he do for me? And how is he calling me to enter into deepening intimacy with him? Um, you know, for us as Franciscans and our religious community is called the Franciscans of the Eucharist. And that's not, 
you know, just an inconsequential addition to the title Franciscan. Um, because if you look at the history of the Franciscan order, you'll discover that although, of course, everyone loves St. Francis to be their garden patron, um, and I love right. animals in nature, <laughs> trust me, I would go on a 10-week hiking expedition through any mountain and be in my glory. Um, but the reason why St. Francis could enjoy the goodness of creation is because he had a profound communion with the Creator. Um, <clears throat> he had a profound reverence for the Eucharist, for the priesthood. He literally wrote a letter to all the priests of the entire world and exhorting them to implement the reforms of Lateran IV, which was all about taking care of the things of the Mass, the things of the Church, the Eucharist. Um, and so he was a profoundly Eucharistic person because his Christology is very incarnational. Um, the Word became flesh, Christ in the crash, Christ on the cross, Christ in the Eucharist. It's all the same for St. Francis. And so here we are a hundred years later, and we're living that Franciscan spirituality incarnated here in 2022. I'm on the west side of Chicago. I live in one of the most violent neighborhoods in the country with our Franciscan community. Um, Bishop Lombardo is our superior, and he's part of the executive, or the, rather the Bishop's Advisory Board for the Revival. Um, and since I became a Franciscan, he has said over and over again, which in a sense echoes some of the words of uh, the great Mother Teresa, that if you can't see Jesus in the Eucharist, you cannot see him in the poor, you know, and the bishops uh, at the end of that beautiful document, the mystery of the Eucharist and the life of the church, which in a sense is a theological blueprint for the revival. They talk about living Eucharistic lives. And this goes all the way back to the early church. If you're having an encounter with Christ in the Eucharist, you don't stay within yourself. It, it, it pushes an ecstatic movement outward toward others Right? And if we're all made in the image and likeness of God, and yet I cannot see a shadow or an image of the Lord Jesus and the other, there's something, something off in my Christian heart. You know, like I, there's something missing in there. There's something that needs to be stirred and reawakened. And so for the hours that you know, we kneel, that we sit in the presence of our Lord in adoration, that we gaze upon him, that we watch as the priest elevates the host and the chalice at mass, like all of those hours and hours and hours before the blessed sacrament are what should be informing me as a Franciscan spiritually, the reason why I do what I do. You know, I certainly care about people having their basic needs met and we do a lot of meeting of basic needs, but ultimately I hope and desire for these people to encounter Jesus themselves I want them to go to heaven too. So by sharing the joy of the Lord, by acknowledging their dignity, by the way that I interact with the men and women and children that come here, that's just a very small, but very real, simple way to, in a sense, live that Eucharistic life. You know, we do it for Jesus and we do it with Jesus. He accompanies us in everything that we do. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's such a beautiful way to be grounded in the Lord and sent by him because then kind of takes the pressure off. You know, a lot of people yeah. will be like, you still have hungry people in your neighborhood. You've been there for 13 years. I'm like, well, Jesus and the poor are always going to be with us. So let's just get real here. You know, we're going to do what we can do, but ultimately it's not on my shoulders to save the world. Jesus did that. But how is he inviting me to participate in his mission of salvation? Yeah. Yeah. 
you're talking about recognizing Christ in all of these various places. And I think specifically in our polarized day right now, we have a really hard time recognizing Christ in the other because we so quickly kind of compartmentalize the other person, whether that be uh, the the poor or the marginalized or just our ideological opponent. Uh, And we can't see that what we say and what we do and how we act towards that person, that other, uh, is is truly, as Jesus said in Matthew 25, it's what we are doing and how we are interacting with Christ himself, whether that be the person who we disagree with at the other end of the pew or at the other end of the ballot box. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And that's, <clears throat> I like the word other, um, not because I like it, but because I think it's just really direct. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, do we believe that we are all essentially brothers and sisters because we have the same father. You know, if we have the same father and he loves us all equally and infinitely, goodness gracious, isn't that an examination of conscience? Um, And I think that one of the things that bishops have really emphasized, if you look at the vision statement of the revival, um, that last point is about unity, a movement that is about conversion, healing, formation, and being sent on a mission to help bring about the unity that Jesus prayed about in John 17, that they all may be one. And he also said, by the way, that (laughs) the witness of his followers is what's going to bring about that communion that he so deeply longed for and prayed to his father for. Um, So this is all very connected, like it's all connected. I think to the person who sits in the pew and sees the elevation, and you talked earlier about this is not all about intellectual formation, but I think there's part of it that is because uh, there are so many people who have uh, uh, maybe a a fundamental misunderstanding about the Eucharist. Uh, Even recently, I, I heard a homily by a priest who talked about Christ being present with us in a physical way. Um, through the Eucharist, and of course, this is something that that Saint Thomas would would say is the one way that Christ is is not present in the Eucharist is physically, because the physical is all to do with the accidents, those those things that make up a thing. But Christ isn't transformed; the the bread and wine isn't transformed into Christ. He's transubstantiated that essence of Christ present under the auspices of bread and wine. Uh, And the reason that that's important is we have such a scientific or scientist community that someone might be led to disbelief because they look at that and go, well, I know that if you put that under a microscope, that that's just going to be bread. And the church would say all the way back from the beginning with the fourth, fourth century baptismal homilies, of course it looks like bread because it's still made of the same stuff that bread is made of. But what it is has been changed, just like a dollar bill is no—we don't really call it paper and ink anymore. Its its essence has changed into something else. This is a, it's an analogy. It's a, a crude analogy. But to say that uh, it is something different now, and so we treat it differently than we would have treated it if it were just bread. And so as you look at um, the theology of the Eucharist, which a lot of times people say, well, you know, that's that's highfalutin, that's for people with master's degrees. Uh, and yet it can have great impact on our own belief because, mm-hmm. well, if I can't intellectually assent 
to this thing being really Christ? Am I going to really treat it like it's really Christ? And then Mm -hmm. is it going to set off the whole chain of reactions? Because Scooby-Doo told me so. There has to be an an explanation, a physical explanation for every uh, unexplainable mystery. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely correct. You know, that formation, that theological formation is critical. Um, you know, for many reasons, most of our Catholics, their theological religious formation ended at about an eighth grade level, you know, when they were confirmed, they're about eighth grade, early high school. We know that people come to the Lord primarily in three ways, the way of truth, the way of goodness, the way of beauty. Right. So somehow in one of those three ways, the Lord just captures people's hearts. And we have a lot of truth people out there who will actually have an intellectual conversion before they might have a heart conversion to Christ. And so how are we clearly articulating the theology that's been entrusted to us? Something that we've noticed, um, the bishops, the executive team, and I think like perhaps any observer at large is that we live in a society, in a world today, um, where there are a lot of symbols, but where we don't know how to read symbols and symbolism. And many people think that the Eucharist is a symbol of Christ, but as you articulate it, it substantially becomes Christ at transubstantiation. So the outward appearances remain the same, but we believe it's been transformed, that that's really Jesus. So how do we help people to learn how to understand symbols and symbolism in a new way? So for example, for me as a consecrated woman, the church, one of the ways she helps me understand who I am is that I am to be a living sign of the future kingdom. So like when you look at me, do you see clouds and light and heaven, like, or whatever you imagine heaven to be? Well, no, but the way that I live my life should be pointing toward what is coming. Uh, I love St. Augustine's like theology of the thing. And he kind of like really mapped this out. Like, well, this is the thing and this thing symbolizes this thing, but this thing that looks like a symbol is actually the thing it symbolizes. And it's like, whoa, that's so exciting. And by the way, I totally disagree with anyone that thinks you have to have any masters, anything. I have five-year-olds that I teach that understand the theology of the Eucharist. Like they know that it's Jesus And it's partly because I believe, and I've shared that faith with them, but their hearts have opened and assented. I have children who are nonverbal, who can tell me that that piece of bread is Jesus. Um, So you can't tell me that this is too advanced for anyone. The Lord is always revealing himself to his children and he breaks through. It's not about the head always, but the heart also. We're talking today with Sister Alicia Torres, who is a Franciscan of the Eucharist of Chicago. She's also an executive team member of the National Eucharistic Revival. Go take a look at that website and learn more about this amazing three-year process over at eucharisticrevival.org. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. And tell me about an experience you've had with Christ in the Eucharist. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls as we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL, and we're talking today about the National Eucharistic Revival, this three-year plan and process that the bishops have given us and are walking through, leading up to a National Eucharistic Congress happening in Indianapolis uh, on July 17th through the 21st in 2024. Mark your calendars now. You're going to want to be there. Uh, we're talking today with Sister Alicia Torres, who is a Franciscan of the Eucharist. Sister Alicia, it's so great to have you on the show today. Thanks so much, Jill. It's been awesome. Each of us has a conversion story, even if we are cradle Catholics. I'm not a cradle Catholic. I have this, I can tell you the progression of how I came into the church and how I first came to understand Christ in the Eucharist uh, and what that what that meant for me. But even a cradle Catholic uh, as you mentioned earlier, St. Francis had this life of conversion. Uh, even a cradle Catholic is going to have these decision points or these these revelation points where Christ is made real to them, and their relation w- relationship with Christ deepens. Mm-hmm. So I would love to hear the story of when the Eucharist unfolded for you because we we see the eucharist as a child and we you know my children can point to it and say that's jesus but there comes a point where it clicks and there's an understanding of what it means that if i if i go into the adoration chapel and i sit there i'm in the presence of christ Mm -hmm. and when i receive the eucharist i receive christ into me that that i can be transformed by his presence in me through the eucharist uh, and that that revelation can have profound effect on our understanding and on our belonging and on our uh, on our spiritual health and everything else. So I want to hear that first story, that that conversion point where the Eucharist clicked for you. Mm, that's a beautiful question. You know, it's hard for me to like identify one specific moment. Um, but I'm certain that it was during my years in, in college. Um, I grew up Catholic, like you noted. And I, from the youngest age, remember having like an intellectual ascent that, yeah, that's Jesus, you know, all through elementary school and high school. Um, I never left the practice of Sunday mass or the practice of the faith. When I got to college, the world became much bigger. You know, I went from a very small Catholic school um, to a very large Catholic University, um, Loyola University, Chicago. And I think that what began my movement towards this encounter with Christ in the Eucharist was noticing um, just how unhappy so many college students seem to be. I mean, like, here we are, like, I feel like, wow, what an incredible opportunity. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Here I am far from home. And this is amazing. And yet I walk around campus and so many people just looked like unhappy. And I'm like, why are people not so jazzed to be here? This is so amazing. Um, and so at some point in the middle, you know, around sophomore, junior year, college, um, I had been going to daily mass quite regularly through high school and college, but I started to go to Eucharistic adoration on my own volition. Um, and the one moment that I just remembered as you were asking this question actually is one which I haven't thought of for a while, and perhaps it was the moment. Um, <clears throat> there is an adoration chapel in Chicago at Our Lady of Lourdes Parish, um, which is on Ashland Avenue. And at the time, it was open 24 hours a day. It was in the back of the parish. You kind of go through the alley. 
and it's a replica of the grotto in Lord. And there's the Eucharist, right? Um, so my friend and I, um, who are doing different things on campus to try to help with evangelization, we decided, well, maybe we can go to Our Lady of Lords sometimes, you know? And so he had a car and so we drove over there. And I remember going to that chapel and just being so blown away by how many people were there at like 11 p.m. It was full, mostly of Spanish-speaking people. And the it's funny because it was the people first that, that hit my heart. There was this mother. And to note, every time I went to the chapel, she was always there. There with two or three small children. She had her stroller. And the children were always quiet. And she was always there late at night. And for some reason, her witness was very powerful to me. Uh, here's this woman who clearly has so many responsibilities, a family to care for, and yet she seems to be so centered on Jesus. And I remember kneeling close to the front because most, you know, like most Catholics who are always so either um, gracious or afraid to be in the front pew. So there are always seats in the front, never in the back. So we right. went up there and knelt in front. And I just remember having this like deep experience of God's presence there before the Blessed Sacrament. And I can't recall an experience like that before, but it was almost like I felt entirely enveloped, like the air was heavy with his presence and just knowing like, yes, this is Jesus. And I've always believed that, but somehow it's sinking into my heart in a new way right now. Um, so much so that later within the next few months, there was like all seems like happening at the same time. I started to feel this draw to religious life. But I would say quite clearly, I believe that it was Our Lady who brought me to her son in that deep, intimate way. Because we decided mm -hmm. as a friend group to make our consecration to Jesus through Mary. And after that consecration, so it's a devotion where we ask Mary to help us to point our lives and our desires upon Jesus, to get to know him deeply. So she helps us because who better knows the Lord than his mother? Um, my life changed after that in a million ways. And I believe Our Lady has always been drawing me closer to her son, Jesus. But it was in that encounter in adoration and subsequent encounters in adoration where he became more real to me, then the mass became more real, and then my life became more real. It's like, wow, I think I can do this. I think Jesus can fill my heart um, in the way that I deeply desire. I'm not so afraid of this sense towards religious life anymore. I love this, this story because it points back to that, that idea that you brought up earlier, that our lives as witnesses make the difference. And so here's this mother with her young children going maybe just for some peace after a long day with these tired out kids to be refreshed and rejuvenated in the presence of, of Christ. And that little sacrifice mm -hmm. drew your attention and allowed you to make the sacrifice of your life mm -hmm. in a specific way mm -hmm. that then serves the church. She doesn't know this. Mm -hmm. She has no idea that her being there and not just the one time, but making the habit of it made an impact on you. Mm -hmm. And yet that, that one, she's the one who stuck out to you. That one person, um, the Holy Spirit used 
to help you in your vocation and to bring you to a place where you are now serving the church and the poor and then also here on this national stage. How much um, how much more does she do for her children mm-hmm. who she can say when you're overwhelmed or when you're tired or when you've just had a long day or even if it's been the best day ever, we go to Jesus right. and we're going to do that together as a family. You mentioned you were raised in the church. You went to mass all the time. What are some family practices that you remember that helped cement your uh, your view of the church and your dependence on Christ in the Eucharist? Right. I think the probably the most the two most impactful would have been. So we were homeschooled when I was younger, and um, my dad was in the military, and my mom stayed home with us. And then um, one of the the church that we went to was in our neighborhood, and so my parents fell into being custodians of the church. So part of that mm-hmm. responsibility was to check every day because it was, um, it was a mission of a bigger parish. So there wasn't anybody living there. Um, but my mom, you know, we didn't just like drive by, um, every day, if it wasn't raining, we walked to the church, we'd go in and we'd make a visit. And so Jesus was there. Um, and every day we'd make mm-hmm. a visit um, and of course, I was much more focused on the statues of Mary and Joseph because like, I could see them. So at that young age, like I knew that Jesus was in the gold box, but like it wasn't hitting right. me as much, you know, but just that habit of bringing us each day for a few minutes just to make a visit, um, I think was very powerful. And then I think in addition to that, when we were younger, my mom always made sure that we prayed the family rosary. Um, and I think that that also made a big impact on me, you know, for that love that I've had in my heart uh, for Our Lady. Um, and then how Our Lady has, you know, in my mind, so clearly always brought me to Jesus. Mm-hmm. As you have parents listening, as you have people who, who may be a little bit far from the Eucharist listening, what would be one thing that you would say to them? as an encouragement to come and maybe one practice, one, one word that would encourage them back to this communion with Christ. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, my, my initial um, sense in my heart is that line from one of John's letters um, that God has first loved us, you know, and no matter where we are at, you're sitting in your car in your office at home with screaming children, the Lord is always loving us. Now, our hearts are open or closed to varying degrees all throughout our lives. Um, I like to make an image with the children that I teach that like God's love is kind of like a fire hydrant. It's always pointed to us and it's always intense and complete and infinite. But sometimes we have a wall in front of it. Sometimes we have a shield. And then sometimes we start to turn toward him like a flower towards the sun to be filled with those rays. And I think the Lord never expects any more from us than a next best step. And so I would invite people to consider what is the next best step you can take? If you have no desire to have a friendship with Christ in the Eucharist, but are interested, then pray for that desire. If you have a desire then ask for the grace to act on that desire. If you're not going to Sunday Mass, maybe give yourself a challenge. Try for four weeks in a row. Go to Sunday Mass. Just ask the Lord to open your heart, right? 
if you haven't been to reconciliation for a while and aren't sure what you think about that sacrament, maybe listen to some testimonies of people that have gone and what it's done for their hearts. Think about going back and receiving that unconditional mercy of the Lord through the sacrament of reconciliation. I think a lot of people may not be conscious of it, but they feel that choices in their lives prevent them from possibly receiving God's grace and mercy, God's love and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. There's nothing unforgivable, unredeemable. Christ took it all on himself on the cross. Let's give him a chance to love us. I know it's hard because love means we're going to be vulnerable, and I feel it every day. So trust me, you're not alone. I'm probably more afraid of being loved than anyone out there. But taking the risk is what makes the difference. Well, to that point, there are so many people, and, and I've been among them, who we think we know what the next step is, and, and it's paralyzing. Mm. But, but really, if we were to take a moment and step back, it's about 10 steps mm-hmm. and not just one. We're, we're worried about the step 10 steps down the road mm-hmm. and not that next step. And so often if we can find what's the one thing I can do to step closer to Christ, don't worry about five, 10 steps down what might be required because God provides us the grace to do whatever he calls us to do. Um, and very often it's not the thing that we're afraid of. Mm-hmm. God empowers us and gives us grace, and we find whatever he calls us to infinitely more fulfilling and satisfying than the things we're engaged in as we're trying to hide from the thing that God's calling us to. So what's that that one little step that we can take? God, give us the grace to see it, that we would be uh, empowered to experience your love in a profound way. So, Sister Alicia Torres, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm curious, just as we end, um, how would someone get connected to what their diocese is doing here with the Eucharistic Revival, maybe to use their gifts uh, as in the lay apostolate to help bring about this mission to the church, or maybe just to receive and experience uh, something done not just as a parish level, this is what we always do, but something specifically related. How do they connect to the National Eucharistic Revival? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I didn't invite people to check out the website. Um, it's eucharisticrevival.org. It's a really beautifully done website. Um, but in addition to the website, if you just scroll down a little bit on the front page, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Heart of the Revival. And there is new content in that newsletter every week. We're highlighting reflections and stories of testimony, people encountering Jesus in the Eucharist, as well as providing resources to grow in our understanding. There's videos, inspirational quotes every week. So I'm very excited about that resource. And I see it as a great opportunity to help kind of have this national unity around what are we receiving and encountering. There's also different resources that are in Spanish available too through the newsletter and the website. So that I would encourage everyone to do. For those who feel so inclined and drawn, you can also sign up to be uh, an intercessor, a a prayer warrior, if you will, for the revival. And there's a way to do that as well. Um, I would encourage people to really pray first and ask the Lord, how do you want me to be involved? And I think most of us, if we're honest, will sense, okay, first the Lord is saying, please let me touch your heart. 
please let me help you be renewed so that I can fill you up so that you can be sent out and poured out alongside with me. Um, But then having those positive, encouraging conversations with your pastor who's already stressed out and overwhelmed. So don't say, Father, what are you doing? Say, Father, how can I help you? You know, and then have a couple of ideas, you know, and if you're not a person that's super connected to the parish, um, try to get to know the people that are helping make a positive impact and want to be on a team. You know, that's what we really need is a team, a unity, a community minded mindset. Um, and then checking out what your local diocese is doing as well. Um, if it doesn't look like there's anything happening at your diocese, you can reach out to the diocese and ask. Um, but it seems that for most people, the parish or your institution, like you might be connected with um, a lay apostolate or a campus right. ministry, um, a Catholic school, you know, the Eucharistic Revival is for the whole church, not just for parishes, although parishes are very important. So not to mm-hmm. just don't feel that it's restricted to the parish, it's for the whole church. Yeah. We've been talking today with Sister Alicia Torres. She's a Franciscan of the Eucharist out of Chicago. Sister, thank you for being with us today. It's been so wonderful. Thanks for having me. If you missed any part of my conversation with Sister Alicia, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you want to learn more, well, there's good news. There is more to our conversation. Uh, Each and every week, in gratitude for the support of our Patreon community, we record an extra segment that we make available to them. Uh, You can learn more by going over to OutsideTheWalls.com. Uh, And while you're there up in the menu bar, you just click that Patreon link and you can learn all about that Patreon support community that helps keep us on the air and all of the various perks that they get for being a part of that community. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips by linking scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, magisterial documents, biblical commentaries, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading from scripture today comes from the Psalms. Uh, As we're thinking about the Eucharist and how Christ is present to us and and what that means for us to not walk alone, it just felt right to return again and read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In verdant pastures, he gives me repose. Beside restful waters, he leads me. He refreshes my soul. He guides me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk in the dark valley, I fear no evil, for you are at my side. With your rod and your staff that give me courage. You spread the table before me in the sight of my foes. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for years to come. That reading again comes from Psalm 23, and this is to me that picture of Christ's enduring presence with us in the Eucharist. It doesn't matter if we're having good days or bad days, whether we have the table set before us in the presence of our enemies or whether we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. 
Whatever that situation is, still God is with us and Christ's presence shepherds us and takes care of our needs. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's nothing that I lack. This brings me back again to that um, that poem from St. Teresa of Avila that uh, if I talked before, my wife painted on this giant mirror that sits in our front room. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. And so all of the things that we could acquire, all of the things that might give us security in this life, none of these things is lasting. But the presence of God gives us strength and courage and hope to endure even the difficulties of life. And so if you if you are in the midst of difficulties of life and you just feel overwhelmed and you don't know where to turn, I want to invite you to come to Eucharistic Adoration. Take those anxieties and those prayers and those requests and sit down in the presence of Christ himself and offer those as as your worship. Offer those as I, I, here I am, and I don't know what to do with these things, but I trust that you are enough. And so I ask for wisdom. I ask for guidance. I ask for comfort. I ask you to be with me. And through the Eucharist, whether through Eucharistic adoration or through the reception of the Eucharist at Mass, Christ will make himself known to you. This comes back to that, that conversation we were having with Sister Alicia of just taking that next step. Maybe it's just the desire to, to experience that. Maybe it is a, a, a need to have a deeper understanding of that. But Christ is with us and Christ is with you. He has not abandoned you. And he makes that presence known to us in a particular way through the Eucharist. Our reading from church history today comes from a treatise on the mysteries by St. Ambrose. And again, St. Ambrose is, uh, is writing here in the early 4th century, so this is very early on. We see that grace can accomplish more than nature. Yet so far, we have been considering instances of what grace can do through a prophet's blessing. If the blessing of a human being had power even to change nature— what do we say of God's action and the consecration itself, in which the very words of the Lord and Savior are effective? If the words of Elijah had the power even to bring down fire from heaven, will not the words of Christ have power to change the natures of the elements? You have read that in the creation of the whole world, he spoke and they came to be. He commanded, and they were created. If Christ could by speaking create out of nothing what did not yet exist, can we say that his words are unable to change existing things into something they previously were not? It is no lesser feat to create new natures for things than to change their existing natures. What need is there for argumentation? 
Let us take what happened in the case of Christ himself and construct the truth of this mystery from the mystery of the Incarnation. Did the birth of the Lord Jesus from Mary come about in the course of nature? If we look at nature, we regularly find that conception results from the union of a man and woman. It is clear, then, that the conception by the Virgin was above and beyond the course of nature. And this body that we make present is the body born of the Virgin. Why do you expect to find in this case that nature takes its ordinary course in regard to the body of Christ, when the Lord Jesus himself was born of a virgin in a manner above and beyond the order of nature? This is indeed the true flesh of Christ, which was crucified and buried. This is then in truth the sacrament of his flesh, The Lord Jesus himself declares, this is my body. Before the blessing contained in these words, a different thing is named. After the consecration, a body is indicated. He himself speaks of blood. Before the consecration, something else is spoken of. After the consecration, blood is designated. And you say, amen. That is, you say, it is true. What the mouth utters, let the mind within acknowledge. What the word says, let the heart ratify. So the church, in response to grace so great, exhorts her children, exhorts her neighbors to hasten to these mysteries. Neighbors, she says, come and eat. Brethren, drink and be filled. In another passage, the Holy Spirit has made clear that you what you are to eat, what you are to drink. Taste, the prophet says, and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who puts his trust in him. Christ is in that sacrament, for it is the body of Christ. It is therefore not bodily food, but spiritual. Thus the apostle too says, speaking of its simple, our fathers ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. For the body of God is spiritual. The body of Christ is that of a divine spirit, for Christ is spirit. We read, the spirit before our face is Christ the Lord. And in the letter of St. Peter, we have this, Christ died for you. Finally, it is this food that gives strength to our hearts, this strength which gives joy to the heart of man, as the prophet has written. That reading comes from a treatise on the mysteries by St. Ambrose. And we see all the way back here in the fourth century, they're already having difficulty understanding uh, this, this doctrine of Christ's presence to us in the Eucharist, because what we see with our physical eyes uh, remains the same. And yet the nature... The the underpinning of what the thing is, of what the elements are, change from one into the other so that we are spiritually nourished by Christ's presence. And while we could talk about this for hours, that's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Anil and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.